our theme for the year, which is from Mark's Gospel, that Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted, an invitation. And they came, they responded. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out. The whole purpose of being with Jesus is so that we can be sent out. And it ties incredibly into the next few weeks where we're going to talk about legacy leading up to our legacy offering. And we do this every single year. There's two key moments where beyond tithes and offerings, we do something special. It's now and then over Christmas, our Christmas Day uh, offering is entirely sent to things beyond us. And I just want to celebrate one or two things before I get into the message. Since the 1st of January 2015, Life You See, that's you, has donated $1,315,000 to missions. That is an extraordinary amount just accumulating, accumulating, and that's supporting field workers, the special projects that we invest in them. But without the field workers, there's nothing to be organized. In addition to that, and this is a figure since 2019, there's been just short of half a million invested in our care arm through us again. And I just want to celebrate you, your generosity, and your heart for beyond yourselves. So the projects we want to look at, and I'm just touching on these briefly, is we've got a team going to Vietnam and we're investing in projects. We do quite a few there, but we're looking to raise at least $14,000, uh, which allow the team to be a part of seeing how the projects are deployed. Uh, with Papua New Guinea, and I need to just shorten this quickly, we've had an opportunity, an invitation. Our movement uh, after the Second World War went there, and there's now something like 2,000 churches in PNG that are part of, uh, not organised by us, but connected in fellowship with us. And they've asked us to come back and help them with some administrative stuff. They do not need help with evangelism and church planting. They're doing amazing. And out of our church, we're looking to support them in that way. And we're looking at an initial budget of around 15000 Mozambique, where we support Robbie Housen, who's amazing. They've been hit over the last 10 years by three cyclones that have devastated their property, and they're looking to build a garage that can house their vehicles that is both uh, robber-proof as well as cyclone-proof, and that's an important thing there, and it's actually not a large amount. And then there's the Wilkins Family Foundation, uh, Simon is on our board and he knew nothing about this. He didn't ask for it. Uh, one of the other board members suggested, and I thought it was a great idea, but they've got initiated a program of scholarships for young women in Vanuatu, where Simon grew up. <clears throat> and we're looking at a minimum of 10,000 there. And that would actually allow two girls to be fully funded for a year as a scholarship, which is just incredible. And then Orange Sky is a nationwide organisation that helps people who are homeless or living rough uh, to actually wash their clothes and sometimes their trucks have showers and other things. And they actually connect to Canberra City Care and visit weekly there and we just want to bless them, invest something in there. And then 
and this is on, in the order of priority, I want to stress, we're looking to replace the chairs in the auditorium. And uh, they're still sturdy and all that, but they're over 20 years old and they're looking a bit grubby. And that's about $50,000, but I want to stress... That will be the last thing on the list that we invest in. But it's in commensurate with what we're doing here in the auditorium. And these are projects that have been on the go for years in terms of always money aside and they've been delivered for us now. So that's just big picture and we'll be speaking a little bit more to it um, in the coming weeks. But I want to talk about legacy and entitling this series, Living a Life That Lasts. And I would add be that to that, beyond yourself or beyond your life, living a life that lasts. And to introduce us, to speak about the issue, which is very prominent in the scriptures, the power of living, not just, excuse me, not just generously, but generationally. God is a generational God. He's a God of legacy. And he instructed Moses when Moses encountered God and was commissioned by God to become the person that God would use to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses said, who am I going to say has sent me? And we know part of the answer was, I am that I am has sent you. But then he said this to Moses, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. He says, that's what you need to tell them. This is my name forever. The name that you shall call me from generation to generation. And I want you to notice that God says, I am the God of generations. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's the way I work. And when you introduce me to the people of Israel, when you go to deliver them on my behalf, you need to remind them it's not just about them. It's from generation to generation to generation. And so the question is, are you and I living generationally? We'll all leave some kind of legacy behind us whether we are deliberate in it or just careless in it. It'll either be a good legacy or a bad legacy that is left behind. And legacy is left primarily in people and in resources that can help the next generation. And so we're never just doing things, or we should never just be doing things for ourselves, but what are we doing to leave something beyond ourselves? And probably one of the best illustrations of that is simply the issue of planting a tree that you may never eat the fruit of or sit under the shade of, but you actually planted it not just for yourself, but for the next generation. One of the most tragic verses in the whole of the Bible, I think, and there's a few, but one of them is what's found in the book of Judges. After the Joshua generation had died out, Joshua had led the children of Israel into the promised land, had many conquests, many victories, began to establish and settle them in the land. But when that Joshua generation died out and the book of Judges, which is a book of chaos and then God needing to raise up a deliverer and then back into chaos, it says this, and after the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, 
Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. What a tragedy that is. He, they knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So despite the conquest, the overcoming, the established, there'd been a failure in thinking and living generationally by the Joshua generation. Biblical legacy is created when we partner with God in such a way that what we do lives on in others. Let me just say that again. The biblical concept of legacy is created when we partner with God in such a way that what we do, what we give, who we deposit something into lives on beyond us. And it involves living intentionally. And maybe you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure if I've been doing that. Well, you can start doing it today. You can start saying, God, help me to be more intentional, more deliberate about how I live, who I invest in, and what I invest in. It involves living intentionally and aiming to build up the next generation for their success. It's not just worrying about your success, but worrying about their success. Worrying is the wrong word. But you understand what I'm saying? Being concerned that I need to deposit something. And it's done in little ways, in big ways. So it's not just about the big. It's about the relationships. It's about aunties and uncles and friends investing in their friends' kids. It's about investing, if you have them, your own kids. And for some of us, our grandkids. And I should have had some photos of the most gorgeous grandkids ever to be deposited on the planet. I mean, yours are all right, but seriously, if, if I put mine up, it would just shame everybody else's kids, you know. It's just, just saying, just saying. Psalm 145 and verse 4 says this, Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. And I want you to notice the transition. This generation tells the next generation of God's mighty acts so they too can proclaim God's power. I'm going to give you a little bit of homework and the Holy Spirit will check up on you whether you do it or not. I'm going to encourage you this week to read Psalm 78. It's actually written by David's chief musician and commissioned by David, and it speaks about generational impartation and what happens when you do it well and what happens when you don't. It's a psalm about legacy. And I want to just quote two bits from it or read two bits from it. Psalm 78 and verse 4. We will not hide these truths from our children. And he's just been speaking about some of God's mighty acts. He says, we will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will impart into the next generation. I want you to notice the engagement of choice, of will. We're not going to be passive about this. 
or indifferent. And then verse 5 through 7. He commanded, this is God, commanded our ancestors to teach these things to our children so that the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. And I love that. That that in the heart of David, catching the heart of God, he's saying, I'm not just worried about my generation. I'm wanting to invest in the next generation, but I'm also believing that there are generations that are not yet born. They will benefit by my actions, by my attitudes, by my choices. And all of this goes against, I think, the very selfish view that most of our Western society has about living for themselves and just living for the moment. That they may know them, even the children not yet born. And they, in turn, will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. The Bible tells us that Abraham is the father of faith. You can read it in Romans chapter 4. And what he means by that, and what Paul is talking about there, that Abraham so modeled faith that it becomes an extraordinary example for us to be inspired by, challenged by, and to learn the lessons of how Abraham walked his faith journey. But I want to ask this question, Why did God choose Abraham to be the father of faith, to model faith? Well, part of the answer would be because he had faith in God. That's a good answer. But as you read Abraham's story, there were moments when he doubted. There were moments when he questioned God. So it's not just his faith. As wonderful an example as it is, there, it's not just because he was perfect in his faith. In fact, he struggled at times, just like you and I do. The other answer could be, well, he obeyed God, and he did. When God said, arise and get out of the land to the land I'll show you, he did, but not perfectly. His obedience wasn't perfect. But in Genesis 18 and verse 19, God says, this is why I chose him. Yeah, I'm not dismissing the obedience and the faith, but he says, this is why I chose him. I singled him out of all the nations is the inference. I singled him out so that he would direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abram all I have promised he says I singled him out because I knew that Abraham would think generationally that he would impart what he gained from me into his son that he would live with a generational mindset a generational attitude God says I singled him out for that reason yeah the faith was important the obedience was important but I singled him out because he would live generationally All of things in Christ, in faith, begin with what goes on in our heart. It doesn't mean we dismiss our head. Please don't ever turn your brain off. Use it. God gave it to you. Maybe some of us need to dust it off and vacuum clean and get it jump-started again. But it starts with our heart and engages our head and engages our hands and our feet But if you want to 
have a sense of creating legacy, you've got to let God do something in your heart. And if that was a single takeaway for this morning's message, is saying, God, would you do something in my heart around legacy? I'll use my brain. I'll engage my actions, I'll mobilize my finance and whatever else I can do. I will activate my serving. I will build the relationships. But God, would you do something in my heart? Paul, in taking up in this instance an offering for the relief of poverty because of the famine that had hit a whole section of the churches, says this, each of you, should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Now, the primary focus of this morning's message is not on giving. We're going to touch on that in the series, talking about imparting generationally into people and then what we do with our finance, our resources. But I want you to notice, he says, if you're going to be generous, you've got to make some decisions in your heart. Then he goes on to give a whole lot of really practical stuff about how you engage your head around giving because he's not talking about emotional giving, but he says you've got to make a decision in your heart before you make a decision with your head. And again, this appeal, would you let God engage your heart this morning around legacy? Jesus put it this way, In Matthew 6 and verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And again, I'm not looking at the issue directly of God and mammon, God and money. I'm looking at the fact that Jesus speaks of significant heartfelt emotion, what you love and what you hate. So he's saying, if you're going to settle the issue between God and material things, you've got to let God do something in your heart. Because if you love the wrong way around, you cannot actually serve God by loving material things. But you can serve God when you love him and use material things to be a point of influence and to leave legacy. And so how do we let God have access to our heart? And these principles apply not just to the legacy thing, but to every single part of our lives. The first thing is we've got to get into the presence of God. We've got to get... All things in faith in Christ somewhere have to connect us to the presence of God. Faith can be taught and explained and our minds can be engaged and they should be. Our feet and our hands should be engaged. But if we don't allow God with his presence to engage our heart, it becomes religious behavior rather than faith-filled behavior. As with all things in following Jesus, we catch God's heart when we get into his presence. And we have so many opportunities to do that. You gathering this morning in worship, gathering online, being a part of it, saying, God, I want to be in your worship, in your presence. I'm willing to worship. In spending time 
regularly in God's word and in God's presence and praying and singing along in the car to worship music, whatever you're doing, that whole thing, God, or sitting quietly, admiring the glory of his creation at this time of year, trying not to freeze to death while you do it. But that whole thing, even walking around Canberra at the moment, seeing the glory of the autumn leaves and on a sunny day. Linda and I on Monday went for a walk around Lake Burley Griffin, bridge to bridge. And it was stunning. If you remember, there was hardly a breath of wind. It was sunny and about 16 degrees. It was brilliant. Well, it's all those things, but it's about getting into God's presence. Moses, when he was leading the children of Israel, now on its way to the promised land, which got hijacked along the way for all sorts of reasons, said, if your presence doesn't go with us, we're not going. And God said, I'll send my presence with you. And Moses then says, he's like reinforcing something to God. He says to God, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Isn't that an amazing thing? He says, God, there's other people who have religious behavior and and some of it terrible and horrendous in child sacrifice and all sorts of things that were going on in the society. But he said, God, the thing that really distinguishes us from the rest of all the people is your presence, is your presence. And then he says, Lord, would you show me your glory? We're still in Exodus 33. Would you show me your glory? And the Lord said, I want you to notice this, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And I want you to notice out of all the attributes that God could have revealed to Moses, and, and some of them were on display anyway, in the glory that he saw up the mountain in the cloud. He saw some of the things. He's, God says, the thing that I really want you to catch as I pass by is my compassion for people, is my heart for people, is my goodness towards people. He says, I want you to catch that, Moses. I want you to know that. Mark Batterson said the plans of God are only revealed in the presence of God. And so God's plans for your life and in this context for what I do about legacy, you've got to get into the presence of God and catch his heart and then begin to make decisions out of that. The second thing, and it flows from God's presence in your life, is to recognize God's providence And providence is probably not a word we throw around a lot, but it's a great biblical concept, the providence of God. And if you want to understand providence, you just have to look at the first seven letters in the word providence, and it's the word provide. It is the fact that God's providence is that God provides for us, that he cares for his children that he provides. Yes, there's struggle and there's pain and there's disappointment, but God is a God who provides. The Lord 
David says in Psalm 23, the Lord, the covenant God is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I have all I need, another translation says. The Lord is my shepherd. And as I speak to you today, both here in the auditorium and on our online campus, is the Lord your shepherd? And if not, you're going to be given an opportunity today to say yes to Jesus. Here in the service and also for those who are engaged in our online campus. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. God is our provider and everything is provided for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. God asks Abraham to go up a mountain and to sacrifice and Isaac goes with him carrying the firewood. And it's an incredible picture of God the Father and Jesus going up the mountain. Because when he gets to the top, Abram says, what am I going to sacrifice? And you need to read the whole story and the context to get this right. But God says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac's strong enough and old enough to fight Abraham off. So Isaac chooses to lay down. And God is testing Abraham. God was never into child sacrifice. Let's just make that very clear. He was testing him. Would he love God more than he loved his son? And as Isaac, uh, as Abraham's about to do the deed, God says, stop. And the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ, says, enough, stop. There's a ram caught in the thicket there. Use that. And Abraham, Genesis 22:14, 14, named the place Yahweh Yirah, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use the name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it would be provided. And for you and I, the ultimate provision of God was established, was given on the mountain of the Lord, on Calvary, when the Son of God willingly laid down his life for you and I and declared a finished work. Our ultimate provision is found on the mountain of the Lord at the foot of the cross, where we receive forgiveness and grace and the sense of God's favor and the blessing of God on us. We've got to keep coming back to Calvary, to the mountain of the Lord, because it's on the mount of the Lord and through what Jesus did on the cross, on Mount Calvary, that provision flows into our lives. And living with a sense of God's providence, God's provision is understanding that whatever's going on in your circumstance, you can declare with the psalmist in Psalm 5 and verse 12, surely, Lord, you bless the righteous, you surround them with your favor as with a shield. And I believe I'm speaking prophetically to some people here this morning, that, that you're in the struggle, you feel like you're under attack. Well, the favor of the Lord is available to you to be a shield around you and for God to be your provider through everything that flows from Calvary and the finished work of Jesus. Hudson Taylor, the great Chinese missionary, said this, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. I like that. 
The third thing we need is perspective. So we need God's presence. We need to understand that he is uh, a God of providence. He provides for us. But we need a different perspective if we're going to be living a legacy life. And we need an eternal perspective. And everything around us in our modern society pushes us away and wants us to look at everything that's immediate, everything that's around us. And I'm not suggesting we ignore what's around us. That's not the point. But am I, are you living with an eternal perspective as you follow Jesus? It says of Moses in God's hall of fame, hall of faith, Hebrews 11, what motivated Moses to choose the people of God over a position in Egypt? What motivated Moses to say, I'll walk away from possibly being the next ruler of Egypt, of having all my needs met. He'd been raised in Pharaoh's court. Great story that you can read in Exodus about how God did that. It's because he had a revelation of something eternal, of something beyond himself. And it's actually quite extraordinary what Moses perceived, what he saw eternally. Now, he could never have understood all the details of Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, etc. But he had a sense of the Messiah who was coming. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. He had a sense of the Messiah coming. And he said, I'd rather identify with him than identify with the riches and the pleasures of Egypt. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He had a sense of an eternal perspective about his life. I'm not just living now. I'm not just living for the the moment. I'm living for something eternal. And there's nothing wrong with us living with an expectation because Jesus promises if we do that, he rewards us. We don't earn salvation. Salvation is found only in the person of Jesus Christ, in his finished work, putting your faith and trust in it. Peter asked the question of us today, of the people he wrote to, the diaspora in the day. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way. And he's talking about at the end of times, that that God's going to roll up this heavens and earth and there's a whole theological thing there. And we're not trying to burn the planet to make it happen quicker. Because that seems to be one of the things that people nowadays, oh, you Christians, you just don't care about the planet. No, we ought to. There's a thing of stewardship, but let me not get too off on a tangent here. But he's saying since everything is going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? He's talking about having an eternal perspective on life. And he said, if you get that, I've got a question for you. A question for us. What kind of people ought you to be? He says, I'll tell you. 
You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. To the moment when God reveals all that he's been up to for time and we ushered into eternity. He says you need to be that kind of people. And if you meditate on that verse for a bit and let it really sink in, it will forever change the way you think and live. What kind of people ought we to be? Well, people who look forward to eternity, who live fully in time, but we don't live for time, we live for eternity. Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist, said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. What a great statement. So that everything I look at, I look through the lens of eternity. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. And that could be one of the greatest heartfelt responses you and I can make to the Lord today as we talk about legacy. The final thing, and I'm just going to touch on this and land it quickly, is we need passion. The Bible calls it zeal. Paul in Romans 12 and verse 11 says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And literally that concept of spiritual fervor is best pictured by a kettle or a pot that's on with water in it that's on the boil. He said, keep bubbling with the things of God. And all of us go through seasons of being more passionate and more on fire and then we deal with stuff and things get into our heart and we've got to sort it out and all the rest of it. But he's saying, just guard that, that zeal, that passion for the Lord and for the things of God. He says, have a spiritual fervor so that you can continue to serve the Lord. And the only way you and I can do that is by the power of the Holy Spirit, keeping our spirits alive, quickened, awakened, ready and eager, refreshed and renewed. We need to say, Holy Spirit, help me to maintain spiritual fervor. Yeah, we can do things. There's something about being in fellowship with other passionate believers that stirs you. But ultimately, it's got to be an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And for, for some of us today, we need to say, Holy Spirit, come and awaken me again. Come and stir me up again. Come and start the pot boiling in my life again. I need spiritual fervor. I've been pushed down all sorts of things. I'm, I'm carrying the drag of the post-COVID pandemic. God, I need you to, to do something in me, to stir me up. The disciples watched Jesus as he cleansed the temple and they remembered what was written. That zeal, the fervor, the love for God's house, God's people ate or burnt in Jesus powerfully. It was visible. It could be seen. George Whitfield, again, one of the great revivalists. I love this prayer. God, give me a deep humility, a well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye. And then let men or devils do their worst. You see, 
To have zeal, to have passion means there will be opposition. There will be challenges. And he knew that. But he said, God, do something in me. Give me a deep humility. We don't want to be arrogant people. We need a humility in the way we engage our generation. We need a fervent love for them and for God. We need a single eye. My heart is set on being well-pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Give me a deep humility, a well-guided zeal, a burning love and a single eye. And then let men or devils do their worst. Lord, do that for us. Do that for us in our generation.